Good morning, church family. You know, Peter, at the end of his life, in 2 Peter, I wrote a letter to fellow believers, the same ones he wrote to in 1 Peter, who were under pressure from false teaching. And that should cause us to ask the question, well, what were they claiming? What were the false teachers claiming? And we know from the content of the letter that at least there were these three pressure points. Can you really trust the Bible? I mean, really? I mean, come on. Seriously? How do you know that the New Testament properly brings the story to its conclusion? Number two, is Jesus really returning? I mean, he's taking forever. The world moves on and on and on and on. I mean, when are we going to see it happen? Third, is God really going to judge people? I mean, come on. What kind of God is that? You're scaring people for nothing. I don't think those objections have changed much, have they? Biblical Christianity is under those same pressure points today, which is why 2 Peter is so important and so helpful. And our series title is that we can grow in grace and knowledge. And Pastor Byers explained last week that Peter starts with the positive. Yes, you can grow in grace and knowledge. You can reject false teaching. Because through God's divine power, we have everything we need to live a godly life. So regardless in the time in which we live, the circumstances we face, the, ple- the blessings that we enjoy, we have everything we need to live a godly life. Do you believe that? I, I hope you do. I hope you believe that. That you're convinced that through His power, He has given you magnificent promises. That He has allowed you to escape the world's thinking and has given you the strength to grow in character so that you might be useful and fruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. I hope you're excited about that because there's going to be some pressure points. False teaching doesn't have to scare us. Peter is going to continue his argument in chapter 1, verse 16, and I'd like you to turn your Bibles to 2 Peter Chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. As you're getting there, there are certain truths that are essential to the Christian faith. There is no negotiation on them. In fact, sometimes I get asked, are you a fundamentalist? And I say, well, that depends on what you mean by it. If you're asking me, do I think women can wear pants and still please Jesus? The answer is, Yes. So no, I'm not a fundamentalist in the sense of a legalist. However, if you're talking about a fundamentalist in the sense that I believe there are core doctrines that are required to have biblical Christianity, the answer is yes. They're classically called the five fundamentals of the faith. They are the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary atoning work of Christ on the cross, and the physical resurrection and personal bodily return of Christ to the earth. Let's just take a little test. Let's just decide, well, let's give up some of these. How about number two? 
We'll just give up the deity of Christ. Well, if you do that, what have you got left? You no longer have a perfect Savior who can satisfy the wrath of God. So you are still in your sin. Well, let's give up number five. The personal bodily return of Christ to the earth. Well, if you do that, then what's the point? We become nothing more than a social club. What about number one? If you give up number one, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, then how do you decide whether something is true or not? And Peter, in the text we're going to look at today, is going to use number five. That is the personal bodily return of Christ to prove number one. That is the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Our title this morning is Hope in the Promised Return of Jesus and the Inspired Word. Please follow along, Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. For we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by, the, by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. We're going to consider this morning three positive arguments. Why we can count on the Bible's testimony. The first one is because it's eyewitness testimony. Verse 16 introduces us to the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fundamental number five. So verse 16 says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord. The we is not some sort of rhetorical we. Peter is not thinking of the mouse that he has in his pocket. The we is the apostles. And the churches that were founded upon their teaching. And when they started started churches and teaching doctrine, one of their key points was the bodily return of Jesus Christ. Because without it, you don't have any substantive Christianity left. I think the Lord intends us to see that what Peter is saying here is Jesus is returning in power. Now, we have hope in that. It's one of the reasons why we're here. It's one of the reasons why we celebrate communion once a month. It's one of the reasons that we seek to live faithful. But Peter's addressing an objection that's coming from the outside, saying, you know, I'm not buying it. I think you're just following a a tale, a fable, a myth. And it really isn't a surprise to us that people should and do oppose Jesus' return. Because what did the apostles teach 
about his return. Among other things, that he will destroy his enemies, that he will take his children home, that he will reward the faithful, that he will come in glory, majesty, and power, that he's going to make all things right. So whatever goes on in heaven goes on on earth and comes when people are unsuspecting. And so if you are faithful, living for Jesus, then your attitude is, even so, come Lord Jesus. Today be great. If, however, you're not, then you need to have something else to believe in. You need to have some other thing that you're going to put your hope and trust in because being judged, destroying his enemies doesn't sound so good in that moment. So those who don't like that idea, that Jesus is going to return and have complete control, and he, whatever he says, goes, have to find something else to say. So, what do they say? You're making it all up. That's what's happening. You're just making it all up. You're following cleverly devised tales. Your belief is to help you feel better and to get through life because you're too weak-minded, so you invent a story to help yourself. That's the argument. Anyone say that to you? Or maybe something similar? Here you are, sharing your faith, sharing what Christ has done for you and your life. And that's all well and good. You can share away. Tell us about how you've been helped and encouraged. But as soon as you move the conversation to their need to repent of their sin and to trust in the finished work of Jesus, well, that's when they smile and, you know, proverbially pat you on the head and say, thank you for sharing your life story. That's really nice that Christianity works for you. I'm glad for that. But it's not for me. That's a nice way of saying you're following a cleverly devised tale. Because I don't believe God's holding me accountable for anything. I just want to live a full life and then die. You know, friends, I don't know the condition of every heart in this room. But I suspect there might be a few who are trying to determine if Christianity, Christ, is real, legit, and worth following. And you're asking hard questions. There might even be young people growing up in Christian homes with parents who believe in Jesus, but you're still trying to figure out, is this for you? Or is this just your parents' faith? I'm appealing to you that the answer this morning is that this isn't a cleverly devised tale or myth. And you can state that all you want, but it doesn't change the reality. And so we're appealing to you that you would repent of your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. But we're not asking you to do that blindly. The Christian faith is intelligent, thought-provoking, and consistent. And the entire message this morning is going to argue 
for why the false teachers are actually wrong. It's not a cleverly devised tale. So I want to encourage you, get your questions asked and answered. Set up a time with one of us. And let's deal with the questions that you have. Because it's not a cleverly devised tale. And you're not only encouraged to believe in the gospel, you are commanded to believe in the gospel. Now for those who have a saving relationship with Christ, my application is going to focus on the inspired word. But let's not miss being ready to have Jesus return. So what is Peter saying? We're not following cleverly devised tales. Not true at all. Because we were actually eyewitnesses. And he springs up in the text, eyewitnesses of the transfiguration of Christ. Now he's going back 30 years and reminding us of a particular event. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. So he's taking us to an event where God the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. See, he takes us back. And now he asks this question. You know all those naysayers? The ones who are claiming that this is just a cleverly devised tale or myth? Were they there at the transfiguration? Did they see it happen? And here's the answer. No, they weren't. I don't think so. Therefore, they're talking out of turn. We were there. We saw his glory with our eyes. We heard with our own ears the father say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And therefore, what I'm communicating, that is Peter is communicating, is eyewitness testimony. They saw it, they heard it, and they wrote it down. Now, you might ask, well, wait a second. How does the eyewitness of the transfiguration connect to the second coming? Why are they making that connection? Well, if you're asking that question, you're asking a very insightful and thoughtful question of the text. And that leads us back to the passages on the transfiguration. To say, okay, what is Peter trying to say here? Why is he arguing that this eyewitness testimony is so important? Because let's go back to the passages on the transfiguration itself. So here's the one in Matthew. For the Son of Man is going to come in glory of his Father with his angels, and then will repay every man according to his deeds. Truly, I say to you, There are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So the argument is, Jesus says, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I will destroy and judge my enemies. And then the text says, and some of you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on the high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
the connection between the transfiguration and seeing Christ coming in his kingdom is made in that text. It's also made in Mark chapter 9. Again, this is the transfiguration passage given by Mark. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Same connection. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on the high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. When Luke records the same event, he says, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God and the transfiguration happens next. The transfiguration is biblically connected to the second coming. In essence, Peter is saying it foreshadowed Jesus' powerful coming in his second kingdom. We saw it, we heard it, and we recorded it. We all know that Jesus came the first time to redeem his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. But he returns the second time. He comes in power and glory to claim his own and vanquish his enemies. And Peter says, and that has been the message that we as the apostles have been teaching from the beginning because we saw it and we heard it ourselves. This isn't some cleverly devised myth that we invented. Some just don't want to believe it. And they don't want to be held accountable by a God who is going to judge the living and the dead. So even today, we create all kinds of phrases to just sugarcoat and candy coat it, to make it sound better, like rest in peace. Ever heard that one? Rest in peace. It's built on a worldly philosophy for how things will actually work. We live a full life, we die, and we enter into eternal rest, which essentially means a state of sleep. Friends, that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that at death, we either rest in the presence of our Savior for all eternity, or we suffer for our rebellion, awaiting final judgment. There isn't a rest in peace as our culture typically defines it. So Peter says, you know how I know? Because I was there. And those false teachers, they can just stay quiet for all I care because they weren't. They weren't there. Now before I go to the second argument, I just want to say a couple words about memory. I would suspect many of you, like me, would say, I, I don't always remember what happens. Like, I can't remember what I said two weeks ago or three weeks ago. I remember the exact thing. But, you know, I suspect that all of us have things we'd never forget. Here's a couple of mine. I grew up in different places in part because my father was in the military. and So one of my earliest memories is having one of these bad boys. Some of you are like, I have no idea what that is. Others of you are like, I know exactly what that is. I had one of those. You say, why do I remember it? It's because I went to plug it in one day. And I I just, for some reason, did not appreciate the fact that my finger did not need to be in between the plugs when it went into the outlet. 
So I shocked the fire out of myself. I always remember that. That, that memory ain't going away. Here's another one. You say, well, wh- what is that? That is a hollyberry bush. You see, in the state of Washington, there are fruit trees like everywhere. And in our yard, there were fruit trees. But there was also a hollyberry bush. So my father walked me around our yard and communicated to me. He didn't use these words. But essentially, here was the message. Of all the trees of the garden and the backyard, you may freely eat. But if you eat of the hollyberry bush, you will surely die. They are indelible memories. I think Peter's making the argument. You know, when we went up to the holy mountain, that's not something we're planning on forgetting. We were eyewitness to the magnificence, the precursor, the trailer, if you will, for the second coming of Christ. And so that's why he actually records very similar words to Psalm 2, a a royal psalm, picturing the ultimate return of King Jesus. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain, and I will surely tell the decree of the Lord, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So why do we believe in the Bible? Because first, it comes from eyewitnesses. Number two, because it is prophetic testimony. It's prophetic testimony. He says, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which some, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's Peter getting at here? The prophetic word is almost certainly a reference to the Old Testament and more specifically to the passages about the Messiah who would come first in suffering and exaltation later on. And he's saying here not just that his eyewitness testimony isn't good enough, he's saying it's consistent. So the transfiguration proves there's a second coming. I I realize I, I said that already, but I want to highlight another element of it. It's that the apostles were reading their Old Testament correctly. See, Peter and the rest of the apostles were not the only ones reading their Old Testament. The religious leaders were reading it too. Other interested parties were reading it. That's still true today. You can go, if you want, to a Bible class at Purdue University. And it will be taught by a professor who treats the Bible as literature. As a valuable piece of the literary elements created in our world. That doesn't mean they're reading it as the source of truth. It's just a book. There remains a Jewish community today who rejects that Jesus is the Messiah and therefore they do not accept the New Testament as the closure and the completion of the Old. What Peter is saying is that the transfiguration shows that the apostles understood their Old Testament and specifically the passages about Messiah correctly. There's a right way and a wrong way to read the Bible. So those who read it as if it's a bunch of cute fairy tales do not understand it correctly. 
Those who believe in a coming future king without the suffering servant already having come are also incorrectly reading their Bible. And what is so delightful is that Peter says the apostles got it right. They got it right. Jesus came the first time to suffer, die, give his life as a ransom for many. But he's coming back and we got a little glimpse of it. He's coming in full honor and glory. Our interpretation of the Old Testament passages is correct. Now, I realize that that means that some of us might call us arrogant. Oh, Mr. Smarty Pants thinks he has all the right answers. And what's our response? Yeah, we do. Yeah, pretty much. Why? Because we're carefully giving attention to the word that was laid out for us, that helps us understand all its glory and details. In fact, Peter says to the church, pay attention to it. It's eyewitness testimony, it's prophetic testimony, and therefore pay careful attention to it, just as you would a lamp that was shining in a dark place. Now, I'm painfully aware that one boring application of sermons and other teachings is, you know, read your Bible more. You can almost hear it. You know, read your Bible, pray every day, and you grow, 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 right? You're like, I've been hearing that since I was five. But I'd like to encourage us to ask ourselves a question. Do I know it as well as I think I do? Do I know it as well as I should? If the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, if it is the answer to how shall a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word, then is it possible that we assume we know a whole lot more than we do? I once had someone, well, actually not all that long ago, tell me that they knew all the Christian answers and had heard it a million times. I thought that was rather impressive because I haven't heard it a million times. But I just decided to ask a few very simple questions. And you know what I discovered? The sad reality is that that person hadn't heard it for the first time. They didn't know the simple, basic answers that the Bible would provide on questions of very important topics. But somehow, this person was convinced that they had heard it all a million times. So I have a little series of assignments that I hope would encourage you. A little series of steps that we could take to grow in our knowledge and understanding of God's Word. So here's step number one. And I don't know how long these steps will take because I don't know how many of them you've already completed. But, but here they are. Step number one, read the New Testament from Matthew to Revelation. If you say, oh, I've done that many times. Great. Praise God. Check mark on number one. Number two, read the Bible 
cover to cover. Read the Bible cover to cover. If you say, oh, I've been doing that. I've had a Bible reading plan for years and I have accomplished getting that done every year. Praise God. You have a check mark on number two as well. Okay, here's number three. Write a 25 to 50 word summary of every book of the Bible. Now, you know, some books of the Bible will be easy to do, like Philemon. That's really easy. Nice and short. Isaiah, a little more challenging. But write a 25 to 50 word summary. Be amazed, absolutely amazed at the level of your understanding when you do that. Then number four, say, oh, I've done that too. I've got a summary. I could lay them out if you want them. Number four, write a general outline, just general, of the, each book in the, in the Bible. Again, not all the details. You don't need 72 points for them. Just four or five major points of outline in each book of the Bible. You'd be amazed. You come to service every Sunday and think, man, I know exactly where this message is going because I know the whole Bible. Then the last step. I call this taking the road to Emmaus challenge. Luke 24, verse 27 says, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Boy, imagine if we had that, huh? We took the road to Emmaus Challenge. We said, you know what? We're going to go on an eight-mile walk, and we're just going to walk through the Bible as we do, with somebody who doesn't know it well, and explain Jesus in all the Old Testament. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? You know, if we accomplished that, we'd have a really good idea of what this prophetic word made more sure really is. Now, I realize I just may have given you an assignment that's going to take the next two years. Great. But it is amazing how much it will help. And you know, Peter, as he started his book, in the midst of false teaching, started with the positive. He said, here's how you're going to stay away from false teaching. Here's how you're going to, to, to handle life well and honor the Lord in the midst of it. Then, how long do we do that? How long do we focus on the return of Christ? How long do we... Study his word, well, until he returns. Because verse 19 says, Until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. In other words, we need our print Bibles for a while, but we won't need them forever. Because when the day dawns and Jesus returns, then the morning star, that's who Jesus is, arises in our hearts. That means that we will fully know him. So rather than needing to get it from the book, we get it from our experience with him. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we will be. We know that when he, he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. 
So we have two reasons, two arguments that Peter has set forth. One is eyewitness testimony, and he says, do the false teachers have that? I don't think so. Number two, the prophetic word was made more sure. In other words, the apostles have been reading their Old Testament properly. Number three, because it is the Holy Spirit's testimony. In verse 20 and 21, he says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Peter lays down the gauntlet here in what is one of the most important passages in the Bible. It focuses on origin. That is to say that every prophecy actually comes from God, but also its interpretation. Peter is again emphasizing the fact that God gave his Old Testament to us. And then he gave his spirit in order to help the apostles understand and record the New Testament. That's why we put the New Testament on top of the Old Testament and then we stop. That's why we believe that the New Testament belongs at the end of the Old Testament. So when the Orthodox Jew says, well, we just believe in the 39 books of the Old Testament, we disagree. We don't believe that you have it all. That's why when the Catholic Church adds the Apocrypha, we say, eh, nope, we disagree. The Apocrypha is not included in the proper ending of the story. It's wrong. We reject the myriad of other gospels or letters that were written around the first century. Why do we limit our Bibles to the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments and reject all attempts to either get rid of one or to add another? Because the Bible is not a product of human will. Peter says that their interpretation of Old Testament, namely that Jesus will return in glory and power, which is reinforced by the transfiguration which he saw and heard, is the correct interpretation. It says, in essence, what human would invent the suffering Messiah? What person in 1500 B.C. sees the Israelites in Egypt and decides to create a grand scheme foreshadowing a coming Messiah who will suffer and die? Who invents the biblical story of Genesis 1 to 11? It's not the product of human ingenuity. Rather, it's the product of the Holy Spirit moving the authors. That's where we get the word inspired. From here and in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness... These two ideas are coming together in order to demonstrate that what we have is different than what everything else is. Peter adds the element of process. How is it that the Bible can be given by God and include men without men messing it up? And the answer is they were moved by the Holy Spirit. I think there's actually another occurrence of this in the Bible. It's the incarnation. 
How is it that Mary could be involved in the birth of Jesus without corrupting him? And you really only have two answers to that question. One is to take the answer that she was perfect, that she was sinless, and so therefore could not corrupt him. Or the alternative, which is the one we believe, is that the Spirit of God moved over her and ensured that whatever contribution she provided did not corrupt him. It's the same way with the Bible itself. Inspiration reminds us that the words themselves are the very words of God. And Peter here pictures for us the process. The Spirit of God was working all through the process to ensure that what comes out was accurately the Word of God. The last point I'd like to make is why does Peter choose to put fundamental number five, that is the bodily return of Jesus, as the means to prove fundamental number one, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture? I wrestled with this question many times in this book. Why, Peter, are you using the coming of our Lord in power as the reason to demonstrate the accuracy of the written word? And I think I've come to a conclusion I'm pretty settled on. One is, of course, the false teachers were discounting it. That would be good enough reason. But I wonder if there's more. In essence, Peter, through the Holy Spirit, looks at the second coming as the fulfillment of the storyline. It's the culmination. What more important area could you discuss if you wanted to show the ending of the story? How do you know that the beginning and the ending is all right, implying that everything else in between is also right? What more important area could you discuss than to show the very end of it all when Jesus returns and makes all things right? So this message is primarily about the hope that is available in the inspired word. Why? Because it's based on eyewitness testimony, prophetic testimony, and the Holy Spirit's testimony. But it's also a reminder of the second coming of Jesus. And I hope that all of us would say, well, even so, come Lord Jesus. And while we wait, we pay close attention to the lamp. That is the word shining in a dark place. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your kindness. Thank you for the gift of your truth. Thank you that we can have great confidence in the word, knowing that it provides everything we need to live a godly life, knowing that it provides the controls and the help to spot false teaching when it comes. Lord, I I thank you that it serves today as a lamp shining in a dark place. So would you help us to be good stewards and students of your word, that we might live faithfully for you. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to be convinced in our heart of the 
the fundamentals of the faith, the core things that make up biblical Christianity, and that we would hold them and defend them. Lord, we're asking that you would please use us until you decide to return and take us home. We pray for those in our circles who do not yet have a saving relationship with Christ and ask that you would give us courage and in the right moments to offer a defense for why we have hope. So, Lord, we're asking for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.